Hi, this is Bill Wengel, host of My Quest for the Best, where we meet business thought and community leaders to help address issues of relevance and entrepreneurial growth. Joining me today is Rhett Power. Rhett co-founded a toy company called Wild Creations in 2007. In 2010, it was recognized as the fastest-growing business in South Carolina, a blue-ribbon top 75 U.S. company by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and named as one of Inc. Magazine's 500 fastest-growing U.S. companies two years in a row. Rhett and his team have won over 40 national awards for their innovative toys. He was a finalist for Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year in 2011 and was nominated again in 2012. He was recently named as one of the world's top 100 business bloggers in 2015. A member of the U.S. Department of State's International Speakers Program, Rhett travels the globe speaking about entrepreneurship, leadership, and management, sharing the stage with folks like uh, Gates Foundation CEO Sue Desmond Hellman, AO founder Steve Case and President Barack Obama. That's written for Huffington Post, Time, Wall Street Journal, and is a regular columnist for Inc., Success Magazine, and Business Insider. He's served in the U.S. Peace Corps and is a graduate of the University of South Carolina. Red has authored the Entrepreneur's Book of Actions, Essential Daily Exercises and Habits for Becoming Wealthier, Smarter, and a More Successful Entrepreneur. Welcome, Red. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be on the program. But you've got so much experience in so many different areas, but where did it begin? Who was an early influence in your life that helped inspire you to become a business owner? I don't know that there was one person. I think a couple things. I think the how hard my father worked throughout his life. He worked for the same company for, for, for his whole life, but, you know, he, he worked really hard and set, a, I think, a really good example for me. I think my coaches in sports – I was a college uh, athlete. I think the coaches from high school and, and little league and, and, and throughout college showed me work ethic and how if you really want something. Because I wasn't the greatest athlete, but I did work really hard. And, you know, so that taught me about work ethic and taught me about if you really want something, you can have it. In a Peace Corps, Peace Corps, uh, you know, living overseas and in a, in a crazy place that, is so foreign to you in terms of culture. I came from a small town in South Carolina, you know, and, and I was in Uzbekistan in the former Soviet Union, and I had to learn Russian, and I had to get by and, and, and learn how to survive in, in a place like that. And so all of those life lessons, I think, really prepared me for entrepreneurship. My business partner and I have a, a sort of an ongoing argument about you know, is entrepreneurship learned or is it sort of innate? And I, I don't know the answer, but it's certainly interesting. And I think all those influences really prepared me. What sport did you play in college? I was a wrestler. So yeah. wrestlers certainly know how to get things done in a very short period of time. That's one way to look at it, yeah. I, I think it's the toughest sport. I've always gave my football colleagues a hard time because I think wrestlers are, uh, go through tougher training. And yeah, it is a team sport, but it's also an individual sport. Absolutely. And knowing that your actions influence the outcome of the team's results. Indeed. 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 So where do you come down on the issue of whether entrepreneurship is learned or innate? Well, I think every, I think people have the characteristics. I think you're born with maybe, maybe it's a personality thing, maybe but I think I see both sides now. But I think I think you're I think you're born. I think some of it's personality driven. I think some of it is learn things as you go through life and I think it takes all types to be I think all types can be good entrepreneurs. I think there's things that you can learn, obviously. I learned a lot. I matured a lot uh, when we started the business. Uh, I'm a way different 
person, I think, in, in, in some ways uh, than I was before I started the business. It sure seems to me that entrepreneurship is not for everyone. It, it isn't. You're absolutely right. And, and that's okay. You know, it's, it's okay that it's not for some people. I think it takes all types in the world to make the world go round. And have you found in your experience coaching entrepreneurs and um, speaking at these large conferences that the people who are successful at entrepreneurs probably would have been entrepreneurs in some capacity somehow because they often bristle at the thought of working in a large company? I, I kind of define an entrepreneur as somebody that solves problems and tackles problems head on and, and wants to fix uh, wants to fix things and do things better. And so I think you can be an entrepreneur in just about any field, and I think you can still be entrepreneurial even if you work for someone. So I think you know maybe maybe that's a broader definition than what we sort of classically think of as an entrepreneur. But you know I think some people are, are entrepreneurs and they don't know it. Well. Um, when you first graduated University of South Carolina, what was your first job? You didn't start a company right away. What did you do after college? I waited tables on a breakfast shift at a hotel. I got up at 5 in the morning and was over it by 9, and then I went to I worked for a PR firm. I did overnight radio DJing, and I stayed on overnights because I wasn't good enough to get on the, the prime time shifts, but I did want to be a, a rock you know, a DJ at a rock station, and that was fun because I got into all the clubs for free, and that was the, the biggest benefit of that job. Uh, it certainly wasn't the pay. Uh, so I did a lot, you know, and it took me a while to find find really what I wanted to do. And, and I worked in nonprofits. I worked in the restaurant industry. I worked in the PR and advertising industry. I, I got into radio management ultimately. And then uh, I was in the radio station management. I was working for Clear Channel Communications. Went to a Peace Corps. I uh, went to a meeting at uh, Peace Corps recruitment, and it sounded intriguing. And signed up to to go into Peace Corps that night. You know, and and it was funny because I I distinctly remember going into my boss's office and with a resignation letter and handing him the resignation letter. And I, I think it was the first time anybody had ever quit to go into Peace Corps and not take another sales job or another management job at another radio station company. Uh, so he was a little perplexed by that, but it was the best move I had ever made because I learned those two years about myself and about truly being able to to do anything I wanted to do and to take chances. I think that's where I really learned that, you know, life is uh, right there in front of you. You know, no one's going to hand you success. Nobody's going to do it for you. If you want something, you got to go out and work for it. I don't want. I didn't want to have any regrets. I didn't want to wake up in thirty or forty years and say, you know, wow, I, I, I should have gone into Peace Corps. That would, that might have been really interesting. That might have changed my life. I ended up working overseas for a, a lot of my career. I started working in USAID and in, in development. Uh, that took me into doing uh, working with small and medium sized enterprises in the developing world. And we were helping change those businesses over from a Soviet sort of command-based economy to a market economy. And that's where I really learned that our business is maybe what, what I needed to be doing. And so, you know, you asked me that first question, what was the influence? I think the Peace Corps sort of started that. And then the work I did after Peace Corps in the developing countries in the former Soviet Union, helping them understand what a market economy was and helping them transition and be profitable and learn how to manage a new type of company uh, is what sort of got me where I got comfortable with the idea of going into business for myself. 
And what was the genesis of starting Wild Creations? A colleague in, in Central Asia, he, he was overseas as well, working uh, on the same project that I was working on. He and I just continued to talk about, although we were happy doing what we were doing, that, that something was missing. We couldn't put our finger on it, and we drank a lot of beer and tried to figure that out. What it ended up being was that we both wanted to be in business. We felt like it was our time to do something and create something that was ours. And so we started looking at what that meant. And what we decided was is that we felt like we could turn, we could do a turnaround. We could come in and put some investment, and we could put some money and management and structure into a, a company that was maybe struggling. And we looked at everything. We looked in the construction industry. We looked at, I always tell this story about this dead body removal company that we found. And it was, it had an EBITDA, <laughs> it had an EBITDA of $3.5 million. It had state and local contracts. He had a patent on a body bag and he was retiring and he, he didn't have anybody to, to give the business to. And, but we couldn't get excited about that. That was, that was one of those things where we couldn't wake up every day and get excited about that kind of business, although it was a great business. And then my, our attorney handed us an envelope one day and he said, I'm going to disown you if you buy this company. Do not look at this. I, I'm obligated to give it to you, but this is a terrible company. It's a terrible product. It's a terrible idea. And we bought that company. And, of course, uh, <laughs> because we fell in love with it. And it was a terrible company at the time, and he was not being untruthful. It was a terrible company at the time, and but we saw where the product could go, and we saw what it could, what we could do with it, and we thought, you know, we could do something different with the company, and and we could scale it, we could grow it, and we could turn it into something significant. So, what was the product when you first took over the company? So it was a little one product, one product company called Wild Creations. It was a little eco. Uh, aquarium is a little science, basically a little science project, a little kit. The the problem with it was that it had it had a live it had a frog a live frog and it had water and it had ice packs and it had heat packs in the winter. It had all kinds of complicated things that you had to do. And the, and the, and he hadn't figured out how to scale it. It had a, a special gravel that you had to culture and grow, and it had all kinds of components that made it a very Difficult product to ship, made it very difficult to make in mass. It had, it was very difficult for the stores to take care of. So it had so many complications. And uh, but you know we got FedEx involved in the shipping part of it, and they they gave us a grant to figure out how to ship it, how to heat it, how to cool it, how to keep it. In, you know they brought in their drop testing uh, people and they drop tested it and they squeezed it and they threw it around and they figured out how to help us ship it and so they became our shipping company they also gave us a technology grant on how to set up our production line um, and so we had so many people come to bat for us I always tell the story when we got the big order you know when the company really took off uh, every single one of our vendors gave us six months of credit I mean otherwise there was no way we could have fulfilled those first couple of orders uh, it, it was an incredible, it was a incredible time, and, and the product really uh, took off, and we were lucky. So what was the decision? As you look back, and I know that as you're in the midst of things, it's often difficult to realize that that was a key conversation or uh, a various um, breakthrough decision or an action that you took that was really significant. But hindsight gives us the ability to look back and analyze what was the moment 
the contact, maybe the thought that led you to take action and search for a big order? You know, frankly, we were struggling. I mean, we were probably about a month from having to close the doors. I mean, and we didn't want to give up, but we were out of money. And, uh, you know, nobody was giving any money at the time. And, and, and what we learned was that nobody really was giving money to companies like us anyway. When we had an EBITDA of $2.5 million, we still couldn't get bank credit. <clears throat> and so the, but we didn't know that in 2008. We thought that, you know, if we were a good company with a good business plan, that we would, we would be able to get a line of credit. But, you know, we were sinking. We were sinking and we were sinking pretty hard. And I, I remember this, and I'll always remember this. We had one toy store, and the toy stores at the time were saying no to us. That was the interesting thing, that we didn't have it in toy stores. We had it in little gift and novelty stores, and, and we only had maybe 50, 60 customers at the time. And the way we were surviving was going to trade shows every weekend and selling product off the shelf. Uh, we had one little toy store in, in Iowa that was blowing it out. I mean, she was just doing great with the product. And what we didn't know was that she had just gotten elected as the president of the Small Toy Association in the United States, Small Toy Store Association. And she she called us and she said, look, I know you guys are struggling, but I want you to come to Toy Fair in New York. And, and we said, look, we're broke. I don't know that we can afford. I mean, a booth there is like a couple thousand dollars. And and there's just no way. And she said, you know, guys, you've got to come. I promise you, just come to New York. Come to the Toy Fair. Get a, get a cheap booth back in the corner if you have to, but just come to Toy Fair. We scraped together everything we had. We drove a van of product up to Toy Fair. We had, a, we had an old banner that we laid across the table. We had, a, we had a little fold-out table, and we had a couple chairs. And so we went up, and... You know, we walked out of Toy Fair, like I said, a $9 million company. <laughs> and it was because everybody was desperate. And the toy stores were desperate. And she stood up in their meeting and said, look, this is the only thing in my store selling. And so we walked out with not only Brookstone, which is a major national retailer, but we walked out with like a couple hundred small toy stores. And they gave us credit cards for orders. And it was on. I remember that 12-hour car ride back to South Carolina from New York, and it was complete and utter silence with my part business, Pete and I. I mean, we, we just couldn't talk because we were blown surreal. away. It was, it, was, it was, yes, surreal is the appropriate word. Absolutely. You're asking yourself, did this just really happen? Is this really? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, and, and uh, you know, look, and then Brookstone said, look, this is a, you know, 300 stores. We're going to put it in all 300 stores. We're going to do this major display. You know, the small toy stores were, you know, clamoring for the product every week. I mean, they were selling this thing. It was the only thing selling. And that's the product that became Toy of the Year that year. Mm. Um, and so it just, it just went, it just went ballistic. And, and it, it was scary. <laughs> it was really scary. So to put it in sequence, it was after you got those orders that you went to FedEx and got some assistance to solve the shipping and the technology problems. Is that right? Yeah, it, that was that was it. And I, I tell you, what, let me. I think this is maybe one of the best things I could leave leave your audience with. You know, because we had paid our bills on time, and because we had been good uh, vendors for for all of our suppliers, and because we can 
constantly communicated with them. Every time we had a problem, if we were going to be late to pay a bill, if we were having a problem with something, we were in constant communication. And I give uh, uh, my business partner most of the credit for that. But that is what saved us as a company because, like I said, we were overwhelmed. We didn't have any money. We were completely broke. We got in the car the next week, and we went to every single one of those six vendors that were the, our key vendors for the and suppliers. And we got on our knees and said, here, here's our plan. Here's the orders. Here are the orders. Here's where this is going to take us. But we can't do it without you. And every single one of them gave us credit. They supplied us with it for the, for the first six months. And I, I tell you, if I can t- leave any advice to, to your audience is that, is to build the relationships with your suppliers so that when you have a problem or you have a growth spurt like that, that they are 100% behind you. Well, you talk about that in the book. You start um, yeah. in the Entrepreneur's Book of Actions, you talk a lot about how you need to make yourself and your own mindset strong, and then there's a significant portion of the book that talks about the importance of building strong relationships. Yeah, it, it, it'll get you through problems. It'll get you through, uh, you know, when you have a chance to, to really do something in, in, incredible, you need those people with you. you. You know, it's very easy for us to put off problems. It's very easy for us to not face problems and issues, to ignore that phone call when it comes in. Um, but I tell you what, when when things are going really well and you have a shot at at doing something great, you're going to often need, particularly in business, you're going to really need those those vendors. You're going to really need those suppliers. You're going to really need to be able to go to them and ask for credit. And if they don't trust you and if they don't believe in you and if you don't have a great relationship with them, uh, it ain't going to happen. You're the author of two books. The Entrepreneur's Book of Actions isn't your first book. How long did each take you to write and uh, how was the process perhaps different with the second book? Well, Pete and I, uh, my business partner and I, wrote the first book called One Million Frogs, and that took a painful four years. And that was about uh, what it took for us to, to make wild creation successful. My, my new book, uh, The Entrepreneurship Book of Action, that took a, about four months. It was, a, it was an easier process for me because I knew what I wanted to say. You know, the first book, it was hard because I don't think we ultimately set out when we started writing it. I don't think we knew what we wanted to say, and I think that's why that took so long. But the Entrepreneurship Book of Actions was easier because I knew what I wanted to say. I knew what my thoughts were. I knew where I wanted to go with it. And so that process was a lot better. As you wrote that book, did you have certain what are known as avatars, profiles of business owners in mind that you would think about and how you would address or communicate your thoughts to each of those particular avatars? That's often a technique that people use in marketing as well as writing. I knew, you know, from, from my growing my personal relationships with, with people that I leaned on for advice, you know, I had gotten to know people like Mark Thompson, who's a well-known, world-renowned executive coach. I'd gotten to know him and some of his writing. Marshall Goldsmith was another influence, you know, listening to, to, to what they, what they would say and, uh, and, and some of their advice is, was, was really key. Uh, and, and then I just knew from my work with other entrepreneurs and other entrepreneurs that I had gotten to know through speaking and writing and other and other activities and, and just being in business, you know, they were all sort of an influence in, in that process. And, and, and I think I wrote it because I know what a lot of people go through and I, and I wanted to help 
people sort of sort out their issues and, and help them be more successful. Well, as an entrepreneur picks up this book, as I have and read through it, what struck me right away is that this format is very, very special. It's, it's unique in the marketplace. And I'd like you to describe how you thought about the structure of the book because it's definitely written for entrepreneurs who need something actionable and don't have a lot of time to get to the good stuff. What was your thought behind creating a structure that you use in that book? I just know that we're all busy, and I know that when you read a 300-page business book, you you know it doesn't really ask you to implement anything. It just imports a bunch of, of information to you, and it's up to you to sort of digest it and figure out what's relevant for you, and you you know you get a few takeaways from that. You know what I wanted to do in the Entrepreneurship Book of Actions is I, I wanted people to take uh, I wanted to take that a little further. I wanted to take that step a little further. I wanted to sort of break it down for people what the important parts of the book were. I didn't want a lot of fluff. I wanted it to I wanted it to be easy to digest, and I also wanted to make it actionable because I do believe that action is really the key to success. And, and so I wanted people to sit down and think. I wanted the people to take 15, 20 minutes a day, as you said. You know, the format's a little different. And what I do in the book is I ask people to take 15, 20 minutes a day uh, and work on the short exercises and the thought exercises that I give you in the book. So, you know, it requires you to take a journal, write, think, and, and do that every day for a whole year. And I believe that that's how you really get change. I think to really improve and work on ourselves you know, we often want to work on our people. We talk about, you know, staff development. We talk about staff training. But us as CEOs and, and founders of companies, we don't often work on ourselves enough. You know, in, in order for our companies to grow, we have to grow. And that's what I really wanted to accomplish with this book. I really wanted to make people sit down and take that time every day out of a busy schedule. You know, do it over your lunch break if you're sitting at your desk, you know, However you do it, take 15, 20 minutes a day and, and go out and, and think about what you're doing. And I think this book does that. It makes you think about the business. It makes you think about questions that you maybe haven't been thinking about or you have ignored. It breaks down change into smaller, more achievable pieces. So as, as you think about questions that are important to ask for all of us who run, run businesses, what are some questions that entrepreneurs, founders, business leaders often overlook that you find in your experience from working with them as a coach? I think money management is always one of the biggest challenges that that we come up against really as business owners, discipline. And that discipline sort of is wide-ranging. Sometimes you find that uh, they're disciplined in their work, but they're not disciplined in their personal lives. Uh, I'll give you an example. I'm working with a client now who is pretty young. When he started making a little bit of money, uh, he went out and bought himself an $80,000 car. And to me, that's undisciplined because your first few years of business, you don't know how it's going to go. And I, I think going out and spending money on, on things like that is, is, is irresponsible, particularly in your first five or ten years of, of being in business. So discipline, uh, and that can be, like I said, in life, that can be physical, you know, eating well, sleeping well, and getting enough exercise. Those are things that I think affect your performance as an entrepreneur. The other thing that we come up against a lot uh, that I see a lot is time management problems and, and managing the minutes is, is what I would say and focusing on the right things when you're, when you are working, the important things and not 
uh, some of the minutiae that maybe you get caught up in. And that's one of the biggest problems I see. And then, you know, planning, I see a, a lot of confidence issues, whether it be overconfident or not confident enough. And those are the big things that, that I end up working with people on. And that leads to, when I say planning, I think like, you know, processes in place. When we hired 50 people in a matter of a few weeks, you know, we didn't have a process for that. And it was a disaster. And so I've learned the hard way of, of having to scale up and, and, and having processes in place before that happens. So let's back up. Let's just uh, pause yeah. here for a moment, Rhett, because there are people who are listening to this and saying, yeah, process is important. We ought to get one of those. What does a process <laughs> look like, like a hiring process? When you talk about that, are you saying you need to make sure that you have the job description written before you start to interview? that you have these sorts of questions that you consistently ask people, what does it mean in your mind that you would recognize when someone you're working with as a coach or speaking to an executive board in a small business, and you said, show me a process, what are you looking for to identify a process? What I mean by process is, you know, you're clearly not going to have job descriptions written. When you grow, when things like this happen, like what happened to, to us at Wall Creations at that time, we didn't know that we were going to need 15 or 20 people back in the back on a production line. You know, we didn't know that we were going to have to have two people in AR and accounts payable and accounts receivable. We didn't know that we were going to have to have a, a graphic designer. You know, we didn't know all that. So, Rhett, tell me about some of the things that you learned from your experience of doing this hiring process and what you might not have known in the beginning that you learned through the crucible of, of getting huge orders in a very short period of time, that became a valuable experience for you. We learned a lot. I, when we first hired at Wall Creations, when we had that sort of big growth opportunity, we didn't talk about who was going to do the hiring. We didn't talk about salary scales. We didn't talk about – we didn't have a plan for that. We didn't talk about company culture and what kind of values that we would be looking for in a person. And those are all things that we learned were really, really important and, and in terms of hiring, we made a lot of mistakes in hiring. I mean, some tremendous mistakes. I could tell you lots of stories about uh, about some of those disasters. But it, it did teach us that in the future going forward that we needed to pay a lot of attention to what we, what, how we were going to bring people on. And so, you know, everything that we did from going forward and all of our other companies and all of our other things, we talked about that initially. We set up those processes we talked about what we wanted and who we, the kind of people that we wanted, and that was that. That made a huge difference. As you go through these um, growth cycles, a lot of times you realize that you need to bring in expertise. Tell me what you learned, either through a really good hire or a really bad hire of a consultant, about how to run a business or about how to hire outside experts to guide you as you go through that next stage of growth. Well, I, I actually would say there were a few that we tried to hire, and they were sort of disasters. Uh, I remember hiring this one consultant in the toy industry and because we had been told time and time again that we needed a seasoned toy executive to give us advice on how the industry works. And I remember that he sort of patted my head one time in a meeting and said, Now, now, Rhett, uh, just listen to me. This is how we were going to do this. I fired him the next day because it was condescending to me. And number two, it was not how we were going to do it. I actually learned from that in my own coaching practice because 
for me to go in and tell a business this is how you should do it is not the right approach. Founders and, and entrepreneurs, they have typically have a vision for how they want to do something and how they want to accomplish something. What was useful to you in terms of a book that you read or a seminar that you attended or a coach that you might have worked with to help you figure things out just a little bit faster as you grew your business? You know, Mark Thompson was a was a big influence. Uh, Marshall Goldsmith was a was a big influence. Those two, their writing and their work, it just struck me. They talk about how to do business right and how to treat people, how to work with people, how to lead people. And when you're in a position and you're 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 running a company the size of our first company, you know, you 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 are the leader and you are setting the tone for where the company goes and you are setting the vision. Did you work with Mark or with Marshall? I've worked with Mark more closely than I have with Marshall, uh, but I would say Marshall's books and his, his writing is, has been really impactful. And he, and he actually gave an endorsement to, to my book, which was a which was a, a real honor. Yes, he did, and he's quite the generous man. Which of Mark's books led you to work with Mark? I like Success Built to Last. I think that that one probably spoke to me the most. Rhett, tell me about one of the myths that you commonly encounter from coaching small business owners. Um, you work with business owners who are growing a business. They reach mm-hmm. um, a point where they feel uncomfortable. They can't figure things out quite the way that they know it ought to be figured out. And they look for, to work with someone who has been there and done what you've done. What are some of the myths that they come to you with that you're able to help them clarify so that they're operating on a solid foundation, an accurate map to get to the destination. You know, one of the biggest things that I see is that people feel somewhat embarrassed, that they're seeking advice, they're seeking help, particularly those people who've been a little bit successful. Maybe they've got a, a really good business, but they're stuck. They're stuck in some way. Maybe they've got a growth challenge that they haven't been able to overcome. Maybe they haven't been able to raise money for for what they're doing. And it, it, the, the problems vary. Uh, and so it's hard for them in terms of ego, and it's hard for them in terms of pride to sort of come and ask for help. I wouldn't say it's a myth, but I would say it's the biggest challenge to overcome. I, I don't work with people who I think I'm going to have a personality clash with or who aren't going to be open. That's what the biggest advice I would give to, to your audience and say, look, you know, make sure that you uh, like the person that you're going to hire as a coach that you respect them and that uh, you're open to to ideas and to advice. That you've shared so many great ideas from your experience about the importance of taking chances, of being determined and sticking through um, with commitments that you've made that you were probably inspired by from the, the coaches that you encountered through high school and college as well as in the Peace Corps, the importance of being um, responsible you shared lessons about the importance of um, taking chances and trusting your gut, probably as you did in February of 2009 and going up to the, the New York City Toy Fair. Um, and because you built those strong relationships with your vendors, that they trusted you and believed in you, that when you brought them a, an opportunity that required a change in the business relationship, they supported you with that. And that reminding right. us how action is a key to success. You've shared so many great ideas with us on my quest for the best. I want to thank you so much and give you the opportunity to remind people about another important idea that maybe we didn't cover or to reinforce something 
about taking action and being successful. Well, yeah, again, thank you for having me on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, I, I would just leave people with a few things. Uh, number one, and I talk about this in the book, but I think it's really, really important. We, get, we really didn't get a chance to talk about it today, but first and foremost, make a personal mission statement. And in the book, I talk about how important that is to, I think, your overall success in anything that you do. Because if you don't know what you want personally, if you don't know what is driving you, if you don't know what motivates you, then it's going to be really hard to, to drive a business and be successful in a business. The other thing I would say is one of my favorite chapters in the book is, is talks about learning to say no. And as a business person, I, I'm, I'm a salesperson at heart. And so I like to say yes. And so learning to say no is one of the hardest things I've ever done. The other thing about success, I think, is managing your minutes. We talked about this briefly. Learn how to manage your time uh, and be relentless about it and be relentless about how you spend your time and what you spend your time on. Success ultimately boils down to a couple things. It boils down to your habits, your discipline, and your ability to figure out or prioritize what's important. And that's where can people find you to find out more information and sign up for your list to stay in touch? You can go to uh, www.rhettpower.com. Again, that is rhettpower.com. And from there, you can, uh, you can buy the book. You can sign up for my uh, newsletter and my, my mailing list and and if you want to schedule a time to go and talk about maybe uh, spending some time as a coach and, and working together to help grow your business, uh, I'm happy to do that too. And you can you can do all of that from uh, from from there.